0: Welcome to the Room Now podcast. It's the 1st of February, 2019. I'm Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. What happens when pirates get scurvy? Arr. What happens when women with autoimmune disease get mechanics hands? What are they doing under the car? And lastly, what happens when RA patients get periodontal disease? We're gonna cover that today. Our first report is on scurvy and it comes from MMWR and the CDC where they have a interesting report of an outbreak of scurvy in the Sudanese uh, in Africa. Um, And obviously this is related to uh, diet, nutrition, uh, poor health conditions in that environment. And I bring it up because it's a reminder that scurvy is still a public health problem around the world. It's still a problem here in the United States. I had a great case to present as a who, as a, you know, outsmart the, the, the panel kind of thing last year of scurvy that my, my partner, Dr. Dow, diagnosed in you know, a woman who had GI complaints and gingival complaints and joint complaints and elevated CR, Ceterate and CRP. And her husband ratted her out and said she had the world's worst diet. You know, she ate chicken McNuggets and gummy bears um, and nothing else. And uh, sure enough, she had no vitamin C and she had scurvy. Well, I presented this to a panel uh, only to get upstaged by um, uh, a pediatrician who presented three cases of of scurvy to the panel as well. And yet, even though they had been primed and educated on scurvy, and then when I presented my case of scurvy, nobody got it, suggesting that it's hard to identify these people, but you have to think about it. It's very common in younger people, adolescents, young adults, who have these horrid diets, as like I said, you know, only chicken McNuggets and or only the you know, sort of monotonous diets or a fad diet gone wrong, obviously with no vegetables and no no fruits. Uh, but you should look for the symptoms, and they're often musculoskeletal, with mucosal and bleeding and gingival kind of things. So arthralgias, frank arthritis, and synovitis lethargy, fatigue, gingival pain and bleeding, uh, gingival hyperplasia, they have some skin lesions, they can get chest pain, they can get purpura in their skin, they have poor wound healing, Um, they may have deep myalgic and bone kinds of pain, and they can even have elevated sed rates and CRP. So you should look for these, they're not that uncommon. Scurvy, yes, in your backyard. So an interesting study looked at 576 uh, patients with autoimmune disease, uh, and tried to identify the frequency of mechanic's hands. Now, mechanic's hands, as you know, is sort of a roughened, scaly, hyperkeratotic, um, um, digital lesion that has been linked mostly with the anti-synthetase, antisynthetase syndrome and, and uh, the, the inflammatory myopathies. However, in this particular cohort, uh, almost 600 patients, 17% of patients had mechanic's hands. They were mostly seen in, guess what? Wrong. MCTD, 50% of patients came from MCTD, 35% came from dermatomyositis, 15% came from uh, primary systemic sclerosis, 15% from undifferentiated disease, and 14% from Sjogren's, none with lupus had had these mechanic hands. So that means UCTD and MCTD, I like UCTD as a diagnosis instead of MCTD. MCTD, I think, is a diagnosis on its way to something else unified by an RNP antibody. So that makes up 2 thirds of patients with mechanics hands. So these mechanic hands patients, they were very, very likely to have abnormal uh, nail fold Uh They were more likely to have rainouts. they were more likely to be JO1 positive, and again, as I said, abnormal capillaroscopy. So um, it's interesting to note that the range there is different than what you might have normally have been taught being related to dermatomyositis, polymyositis. A UK uh, cohort study looked at patients with hemochromatosis, specifically the ones who had uh, HFE gene rearrangement testings looking for the C2, C29A2Y um, uh, mutation. And they found that when they were, uh, patients were homozygous for that mutation, uh, and you looked at men with that, the odds of actually having uh, hemochromatosis went up like 411 fold, the odds ratio of 411. Patients with that rearrangement and who are homozygous were likely to have not just hemochromatosis, but liver disease, uh, RA, osteoarthritis, and diabetes, a two to three to four fold uh, increased risk of those. So the purpose of the study was to look at if you have the gene and and you were thought to have hemochromatosis, what other diseases co-associate with this? And RA, diabetes, OA, and obviously the liver disease. The um, much more common, of course, was the, those who had these heterozygous mutations uh, for the HFE gene, and they were way more common, but they were also less likely to be symptomatic, and actually they had very modest amounts of morbidity, which was very different than, the, than those who were homozygous. Uh, um, interest, an interesting study looks at the association between periodontal disease and rheumatoid arthritis. Now, we've heard this story before. I'll just give you some numbers. 187 RA patients, 157 without RA or inflammatory disease. When periodontitis, periodontitis was present, the adjusted odds ratio of having um, um, a periodontal disease, if you had RA, was 20-fold higher. The presence of periodontal disease, in inflammation and what looks like infection, but it's really just inflammation, also significantly associated with RA disease activity. What I'm looking to see, and I haven't yet found, is show me someone who treats the periodontal disease and their RA gets better. Or show me someone who treats the RA and their periodontal disease goes away. There's some hints of that out there, these are causative associations. They actually have a very similar this a pathology, the biology, the cytokine profile of the synovium and the joint is almost the same as the periodontal tissues. Uh, and is this a microbiome issue or uh, is there truly a, a good link here? We need some more cause and effect studies, I think. A study of almost 750,000 patients uh, in Southern Sweden shows that almost a quarter of, of the osteoarthritis patients in Southern Sweden are using opioids. Uh, and it's basically two-fold higher than those who don't have hip or knee osteoarthritis, suggesting that even outside the United States, this is a big issue. Um, and the question is, do they need it? We do know there are plenty of studies that show that opioids are no better than simple analgesics like acetaminophen or even uh, low-dose Tylenol. And then other studies, not, not related to opioids, but showing that Tumeric is as good as, as, as uh, ibuprofen in managing uh, osteoarthritis, suggesting that um, sometimes the frustration of managing those patients, especially near the end, uh, is riddled with the use of opioids, which um, comes with a new risk and a higher risk of things that you may not want to exhibit or uh, uh, put upon your patients. Um, an interesting study of 100 kids with Takayasu's finds that there's a 3% mortality in the first year of that disease. It's low, but it's not uh, un- totally unnoticeable. There is a 50% chance of significant morbidity in the first five years. So these patients can be sick, they can be hard to manage. The In, in their, their cohort, kids of course, 14 years of age was the mean age, uh, three quarters of them were, were, were females. Uh, things that to look for, hypertension, uh, blood pressure discrepancy between the limbs, bruise and 50%, hypertension 70%, pulse deficits in 38%, the uh, artery involvement that was found in the kids, renal arteries in two thirds, a order in 43%, subclavian 44%, carotid in 43%. That's the profile of the ugly, but easy to treat, Takayasu syndrome. You gotta make the diagnosis though. Today's, uh, actually yesterday's New England Journal article on oral or IV antibiotics for bone and joint infections. A 23, 24 multicenter UK study looked at almost 1,000 patients who, after they had their surgery or the initiation of antibiotics, were followed, um, and specifically looked at whether they were treated with IV antibiotics for six weeks or oral antibiotics for six weeks. There's not a lot of breakdown here on types of infections, the types of antibiotics. The basis, This is meant to be a non-inferiority study, and guess what? You're looking out at one year, and the outcomes at one year, uh, the failure rates were exactly the same between the IV group almost 15%, 14.6, and the oral group 13.2. Those are not significant differences. Suggesting that the, I think the dictum that patients should get IV antibiotics for six weeks has been challenged by this um, cohort study. I do think we need more studies to be totally comfortable using uh, oral antibiotic therapy as long-term therapy after a bone or joint infection. Um, there's an interesting article that we posted from MedPage today about the risk of inflammatory bowel disease in secukinumab patients. It's sort of a meta-analysis of their 7,300 patients with either psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, or ankylosing spondylitis, showing that the event rate for IBD, IBD is uh, with secukinumab is basically about 2 per 1,000, um, and uh, 0.2. Per 100 patient years, looking at almost 96, 96,000 patient years of experience. As you know, the numbers tend to be a little bit lower there for psoriasis, tend to be a little bit higher for ankylosing expondylitis. These are very rare events. There are a few cases in which patients had pre existing uh, inflammatory bowel disease who received the IL 17 inhibitor and did have some flares. But again, I don't, I mean, I ask patients if they have an inflammatory bowel disease, but I would not defray useful therapy because of an incredibly low risk. I mean, we give biologics all the time with an even higher risk of developing an SIE, a serious infectious event. So those are the real numbers, and you can find them on the website. Um, a study from the um, ASBMR, the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research, um, uh, was a task force that was challenged with finding out whether what, what the actual benefit was to these um uh, vertebral augmentation procedures. We're talking uh, specifically about balloon kyphoplasty and cement vertebroplasty. Uh, and in the end, looking at the analyses and the data out there shows that these are not any better than placebo with regard to reduction in pain. This is a little bit of a shocker because I don't know about you, uh, I do see patients with vertebral collapse and acute pain from that. Uh, and the, the idea is that if you can show a relatively new onset, um, vertebral compression fracture, one of these procedures may provide significant benefit with regard to pain and long-term pain, and I've seen that happen. But this analysis of controlled data suggests it may not be happened. I think that we're going to now be maybe be a little bit more cautious about using these, uh, especially in patients who you know not to have uh, or you can't be certain as to the acuteness of the fracture. And I think you're going to have to talk to the, uh, the experts that do these procedures at your center about this data and how it's going to uh, affect your practice. Uh, lastly, we have, rep- we have a report in um, at yesterday's or today's uh, room now about an update on pregnancy. There was one about um, um, uh uh, infertility and, and, and some disappointment there. I'll just tell you the data, about the second report, which is comes from the Otis Registry, where they followed um, 490 women, mostly with RA, uh, almost 100 with JIA, uh, and looked at whether they discontinued the TNF inhibitor once they became pregnant. Uh, a quarter of, these, of this cohort discontinued a TNF inhibitor before week 20. 41% used the TNF inhibitor beyond week 20, and 34% did not use a TNF inhibitor at all during pregnancy. They showed that stopping the drug before week 20 was not associated with any worsening uh, or a significant worsening compared to the other two groups of their um, inflammatory arthritis. Of course, it's incredibly important to keep the inflammatory arthritis under control to have the best possible outcomes for the fetus and the baby. Uh, They didn't report about birth outcomes in a study, although they did collect the data. I assume it's gonna be part of another study but the idea is that once patients do get pregnant, they could in fact stop their TNF inhibitor. One of the problems in this particular study is at an enrollment disease activity was low to minimal in, over, in like 72 or 73% of patients. That's pretty high compared to most cohort studies looking at pregnancy. So yes, it makes sense if patients are doing very, very well and are well controlled at the time they achieve pregnancy, it makes sense to stop the, the biologic. However. It does not make sense to stop the biologic if they have active inflammatory disease. So we know they can continue to take, especially the TNF inhibitors throughout the pregnancy, and do very well as far as the maternal and the fetal outcomes that are not going to be affected by TNF inhibitors. That's it for this week at Room Now. Make sure you can go to the website and uh, click on these links and read a little more. Uh, We'll see you next week on the Room Now podcast. Tell your friends to sign up and give us a good ranking on iTunes.